Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. My name's Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Dr. Larry Malerba. Dr. Malerba is an osteopathic physician and a classically trained homeopath. He also has a YouTube channel called All Things Homeopathy. And Dr. Malerba, I saw you on a podcast about a month ago, and I was really so intrigued and just uh, impressed by the things that you were saying in regards to not only osteopathic medicine and, and homeopathy, but just your overall perspective on the human body and health. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to come and join me today. Thanks, Daniel. It's uh, great to be with you. I appreciate you inviting me. Dr. Maloba, I was going to ask you, first of all, if you can tell us a little bit about what an osteopathic physician is over in the United States, because it differs quite significantly to what the Australian uh, audience would uh, know to, uh, or what they would understand an osteopath to be. So would you like to sort of int- uh, touch on that a little bit to start with? Sure, sure. And then you can inform me about what an osteopath in Australia is. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um Yeah, I'm a doctor of osteopathic medicine. Essentially, I went through medical school just like any MD, any medical doctor would, and you cycle through all the specialties and you learn everything about medicine and you, any, a, a DO or, or, or an osteopath when they graduate and take the proper residency training can be, be, uh, can work in any specialty specialty they want to. So an osteopath could be a orthopedic surgeon or a pediatrician or a psychiatrist or whatever. There's one, well, there's a couple differences. One difference is that osteopathic medicine focuses on family medicine uh, more heavily and tries to produce family practitioners or general practitioners. And the other difference is that there's an additional specialty of osteopathic manipulation, manipulative medicine. It's a form of body work somewhat similar to chiropractic. So it's as if we learned how to, everything about what it takes to be an MD plus, uh, plus uh, body work too, in addition to that. And that's very different to what we have here in Australia. So it's basically what you said around the uh, manipulative medicine and it's also soft tissue work as well. And I'm not an osteopath, so I'm probably not um, doing it at justice, but it's a five-year degree here in Australia and it's pretty much everything that it is in the States minus the medicine side. So there's no surgery or prescriptive uh, medicines involved there. But yeah, quite diff- uh, different. And I just wanted to bring that up because I think some people may not necessarily understand just how involved the, the training is and what the scope of practice is for osteopaths in the States. Yeah, it's quite and- a difference. It seems um, similarly in, in the UK, right, that uh, osteopaths are strictly uh, do manipulative medicine, uh, whereas here in the States... Uh, you know, doctors walking around in a hospital, you can't tell a difference which one's an MD and which one's a, a DO. They look the same and they do the same things pretty much. And it seems that they're so much more holistic than just a straight MD. Yes, certainly. They have that more of a philosophical bent like that. In reality, though, they're pretty conventional. They're pretty allopathic in in the end, you know. And Dr. Malerba, you've done some postgraduate training in homeopathic medicine. So I find that absolutely fascinating and it's something that I've been looking a lot more into as well. So would you like to sort of tell us how you actually got interested in homeopathic medicine and what your journey was um, 
through that um, understanding that homeopathic medicine has so much to offer? Sure. Yeah, I, I had a unique opportunity. I, I, I went into medical school originally with the intention of becoming a psychiatrist. And as soon as I got there, I discovered there was a professor of family medicine who was teaching a, uh, a, a free course during lunch hours on homeopathy. So I was curious and I had recently read about it, so it had my interest. So I went and started listening to his lunchtime lectures, which were not part of the actual curriculum of the school. And I got hooked and I realized this guy was practicing homeopathy in his family practice clinic, which was a satellite clinic of the university. And you could go to his clinic and the patients that would arrive there, the, the receptionist would say, do you want to learn, I mean, I'm sorry, do you want conventional medicine or do you want homeopathic medicine? And, the, and they would choose. And then I started following this doctor around and every chance I had, I'd hang out at his clinic and watch what was happening and, and learn everything I could from him. And I had this sort of unique perspective where I could go in one room and see a patient being treated with conventional medicine and go into the next room and see a patient being treated with homeopathy. And so right from the beginning of my medical training, uh, I was aware of these these vast differences between the two systems of medicine. And gradually he, he grew to trust me. And then I would, uh, I started to, you know, do intakes with patients and, and, and do homeopathic interviews and help him in the clinic. And I, every free summer I had, I spent all summer long in his clinic and, and that's how I learned my homeopathy. And now you're practicing homeopathy in your own personal practice and it's from my understanding something that you're utilizing quite significantly and you're getting very good results with your clients sure of course i mean that's what i discovered in dr hotchner's family practice clinic that the people getting homeopathic care were getting results in from my observation far superior to just the conventional drug therapy. And I was shocked at the things they were saying when they would come back and report their progress. And so I was determined after that to open my own practice. And I went into, I graduated medical school, proceeded to go through my psychiatry residency training. And during, I still had to pass my medical boards and after a year of psychiatry training, I passed my medical boards and then I hung up my shingle and started seeing homeopathic patients while at the same time the, uh, the hospital, which had a psychiatric emergency room for a, for a large area, uh, they, uh, I worked there night shifts working in the psychiatric emergency room for a couple of years while I was building my homeopathic practice. And you've obviously seen the beneficial effects that homeopathy has, and your patients are obviously experiencing the benefits as well. But why do you think that on one hand we see these benefits happening, but then on the other hand, science says that it doesn't work? What, where's the um, difference in opinion uh, occurring from in, in your understanding? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, I know it works because I see it work. It, when it works, it's, well, let's put it this way. My expectation as a practitioner with my patients is far different than a conventional medical doctor when a patient visits visits that person, right? So when I see someone and I take a long time to go over all their symptoms and all the details of their physical ailments, their psychological struggles, etc., cetera, uh, the expectation is they're going to get better. They're actually going to 
over the course of time get healthier and healthier and need treatment less and less to the point where they're telling me, gee, I'm not fatigued anymore and my headaches are gone and my arthritic knee feels better and my sleep trouble is better and my irritability is better. And so the expectation is is far broader and more holistic than in a in a conventional setting where you a patient presents with a specific targeted complaint and the doctor usually prescribes a drug targeted at that complaint without any consideration for the broader picture right so when you that's almost the uh, the essence of conventional medicine. It's so fragmented that uh, it, it requires different specialists for different parts of the body. And those different parts of the body are not viewed as having any connections to each other. So if I have asthma, I see one doctor. I have arthritis, I see another doctor. I have diabetes, I see a different doctor. I have depression, I see a different doctor. And they're all giving me different pills as if all of these things are not connected to each other. And, of course, the result tends to be uh, a chaotic mix of never-ending vicious cycle of symptoms that, that go round and round and round as I chase symptoms in circles, right? Whereas in homeopathic medicine, when we treat, we're treating the whole person. We're not focusing on one symptom. We're focusing on the whole person. So if the treatment goes well, the whole person starts to improve. And uh, I think the other part of your question there about why does science not believe it, that's a whole nother can of worms if you want to talk about it i'm happy to so (laughs) oh let's open that can of worms up dr malerba let's go for it okay okay uh well it's the same it's the same answer in a certain funny sense um that well there's there's a lot of reasons that conventional medicine doesn't take homeopathy seriously first of all there's just pure blatant prejudice Second of all, there's uh, lack of knowledge and lack of experience with homeopathy. And so it just tends to simply be dismissed out of, uh, you know, what people's preconceived notions are in their minds about it. They don't, they don't understand it. They, don't, they have no experience with it. Then, on the other hand, there are those who hear a little bit about homeopathy and they realize that, okay, homeopathy entails uh, prescribing these tiny little doses of medicines that are capable of mimicking the symptom patterns of the sick person. And upon investigation, critics say, well, the doses of these medicines are just too small to have any real appreciable effect Therefore, they must be placebos. Uh, So that's another huge criticism of homeopathy. And of course, us homeopaths say, well, you don't understand it. You haven't seen it work. Uh, I I dare you to come take a look, right, and see see for yourself. Um, The the one sort of interesting thing is that when, when homeopathy was first discovered by Dr. Hahnemann of Germany over 200 years ago, um, he came across this idea of, you know, like treating like, where he would, uh, he first experimented on himself by taking uh, doses of various substances, observing the symptoms that they could cause in him, and then realizing that those symptoms were the indications for how he would prescribe that substance. So someone else would, a patient would come along and he'd say, oh, gee, this substance causes these symptoms. So I'm going to try it on this patient. And then he began to 
try to refine the system by diluting down the amount he would give. And in doing so, he found that he was able to remove any potential toxicity in the conventional sense and yet retain the therapeutic value of the original substance, right? And so he began, some some claim that Dr. Hahnemann was the first to uh, conduct modern scientific trials. No one gives him credit for that, but he did. So he, um, he would take groups of patients and give them doses of, a, of an unnamed remedy. They didn't know what it was. And their goal was to take repeated doses of it and then report back on the symptoms that they were experiencing. And he called that approving, right? So he was doing his provings, his clinical trials, studying substances and the effects that they would have on patients. And then that information was gathered and collated and became what we call the materia medica, right? So there's a, the materia medica is the body of information for each particular remedy, each particular therapeutic substance. And that was the basis upon which you would prescribe it, right? So, so um, for example, just on a real simple level, um, we all know the substance poison ivy, right? It's a plant and we know what symptoms, or at least some of the symptoms that it can cause. So everybody knows that if, you, if you're the wrong person and you react to poison ivy, you're going to wind up with a, a rash that's very itchy and blistery and the, and the blisters will break open and ooze. And that's going to be the symptoms that you get from poison ivy. Now, flip that around, right? And in a therapeutic setting, if a person presents to you with similar symptoms, you might want to prescribe homeopathic doses of poison ivy. In homeopathy, it's called rustox. Rustox is the Latin name of the plant. But think about it for a minute, right? What are the situations where you might see a symptom pattern symptom uh, similar to poison ivy? Well, one example would be uh, shingles, right? A person might have a case of shingles, and their particular case of shingles is has a lot of blisters and a lot of uh, sticky oozing and a lot of itching, right? And so homeopathic rust tox might be just what that person needs to treat their shingles. Uh, chicken pox is a great example, right? So Kids with chickenpox often respond very well to homeopathic rust tox because the symptom profile is very similar to the symptom profile of homeopathic poison ivy, poison ivy, right? So and that's uh, that's um, how it's how it's done in in actual practice. And you, in theory, you can do that with any substance whatsoever. You can take a substance study the symptoms it can cause, and then use that as your therapeutic indication to treat. And there are literally, you know, thousands and thousands of homeopathic remedies that have been studied like that. When I went through and studied homeopathic medicine in my naturopathic degree, I never really gave it much thought after I finished studying because I didn't really understand how it worked. But recently, I've been talking to a few uh, professors and doctors about a thing called structured water and the fact that water can take on a fourth phase or a, an additional structure and that it holds memory. And this is now starting to actually be not necessarily accepted, but more widely studied in medicine. And since I've been looking into structured water, I'm now coming full circle once again and understanding that actually homeopathic medicine is very possibly uh, the medicine that people claim that it is, that it, it does have these, uh, these or this capacity to heal a range of conditions based upon um, using frequencies and 
um, energetic properties to influence the, the structure of water, which we then put into our body and it has a systemic effect because our body is basically, you know, 75% water. So is that, am I sort of on the right path of thinking here or the right train of thought or am I way off in, in how homeopathy actually works? That's a complicated question. I mean, from the beginning, when I saw what I saw in Dr. Hotchner's clinic and the results he was getting, I was stunned. And naturally, I wanted to understand why, right? That's the big question everyone then comes to, right? Why? How? How and why is this happening? How can this be possible, right? Um, and there are many theories and many people who have attempted to figure out why and most recently yes there there's a lot of research being done into um the structure of water by by a lot of that research is being done by physicists and there's a lot a great deal of interest and there's actually a whole field of scientific study uh, called hormesis. Uh, there's like journals, scientific journals uh, on hormesis, which is studying the the study of the, of the dose dependent doses and the effects of different dosages on systems, right? Um, and when we're studying water, uh, some people are looking at the structure of the water. Some people are studying the the nanoparticles in the water, uh, the energetic properties of the water. And the reason we're doing this, of course, is that when you, when you create a homeopathic remedy, you start with uh, a gross, um, uh, the gross substance, right? Let's say we're starting with uh, just uh, sodium chloride, right? Sodium chloride. And you, you have some sodium chloride. You put it in solution and you uh, dilute it a certain amount and then you shake it very vigorously. And then you take a part of that solution and you put it in more solvent and you shake it very vigorously. And you repeat this process over and over whereby you are serially uh, diluting and shaking or succussing the, 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 this, this, this solution. And as you do that more and more and more, naturally you're going to wind up with a final solution that has very little, if any of the original substance that was first put into water or, or alcohol. Um, and in the end you have this solution of water that, you can barely detect any of the original sodium chloride, right? So everyone's saying, well, gee, how can this possibly have any effect on anybody, right? Um, even, the, even the example of sodium chloride is kind of a funny example I'm using because no one thinks that sodium chloride could be used as a therapeutic agent in the first place. But, but, mm. but yet, when you do it that way and you study the homeopathic solution at the end, it's amazing what that that particular remedy can be used for. It's 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 incredible. Um, but anyway, so we're studying. Some people call it, you know, it, there's the memory of the substance is still in the water, and it affects the structure of the water. And some people are saying, well, it's the nanoparticles. It's these tiny little particles that were barely detectable that that have some kind of effect, and in the end, the way I try to explain it to to anyone, to pa my patients, to people, um, is that it's a kind of uh, it's an energy medicine that utilizes a stimulus response model of treatment. So, in other words, the symptom profile of the person is a reflection of the energetic state that they're in and the goal of the homeopath is to try to match up 
that that symptom profile with some substance in nature that can create a similar symptom profile. And then so you are matching up the energy pattern of the person with the energy pattern of of the substance. And when you bring the two together, you get this kind of, uh, you know, like in rudimentary physics, you'd call it like a constructive interference. You get this this it, it it acts as a stimulus that provokes a response from the person's energy field and they start to go through changes and break free from the symptom pattern that they're stuck in right so to me all illness is really an energetic state that the person is stuck in or in a negative feedback loop, just keep repeating the same symptoms over and over. That's what chronic illness is, right? I can't shake this thing no matter what I do. And the way you break that pattern is through a similar energy that, uh, ha- you know, you, you provide the remedy, it's the stimulus, and then you sit back and wait for the response and you you chart it over time and you you manage the case as you go along and depending upon how the what the person reports back gee i'm feeling better you might you might stick with the remedy or you might just wait or you might change the remedy if the symptom pattern shifts in certain directions as you go along right and so this is the energetic nature of homeopathy and the answer as to how it works is still a mystery uh, but certainly, you know, as far as science can go, the, the, the answer does lie somewhere in the realm of physics, you know. And I always find it interesting when people say, well, h- how come you don't know why it doesn't work? But if you look at something like aspirin, for example, modern medicine and pharmaceutical medicine still doesn't realize how aspirin works. So um, I guess... There's so much that we don't understand. And at the end of the day, all that really matters is, is the patient feeling better, right? Because it doesn't, the the efficacy of the medicine is not going to change whether we understand how it works or not. And, you know, this is, excuse me, this is one of the things that I've been concerned with is almost seeing the systematic dismantling or the systematic destruction of homeopathic medicine particularly in the west uh in places like india for example you know it's homeopathy is still the most widely used form of medicine that's practiced around the world but particularly in the west it's been in my opinion as i said systematically dismantled and i think that's probably for a number of reasons it's you know pretty safe it's inexpensive it's readily available and it works. And I don't think you can have that form of medicine widely available to people because it poses then a uh, it's a competition or a threat to the mainstream medical model that uh, is very prevalent throughout the West. Um, why do you think we've seen this sort of unfair targeting of homeopathy, Dr. Malerba? Yeah, it's a very good assessment. I like what you said there. It's it's true. Um, the the vast majority of people, if they, it seems the criteria seems to be, if I don't understand it, then it's not possible, or if you can't explain it, then it's not possible. Which is kind of silliness, right? It's like, uh, if we took that as the actual standard, no scientist would ever endeavor to investigate anything, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so, gee, we don't understand it. Oh, well, we give up, right? Um, yeah. But I, I've puzzled over this for a long time, you know. Um, in addition to, yes, homeopathy, I mean, you just cannot overlook the obvious uh, monetary implications where the it's a threat to the pharma's uh, monopoly on medicine around the world. And so 
there's a great deal of uh, resistance to homeopathy f- for that reason. It, homeopathy is very inexpensive, very accessible, very easy to produce. It's non-toxic. You don't have to make synthesized toxic chemicals. It's safe, right? And and you know the only thing is that's true is that it's 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 not easy to practice. You have to know what you're doing. If if you want to treat a chronic illness, it's easier to practice if you are treating simple acute things at home and there's a whole long history of homeopathic uh, treatment at home by laypersons who purchase a little remedy kit and learn how to use the remedies for simple things at home like a sprained ankle and a head cold and a fever and so on Um, but it takes a lot more to learn how to treat serious disease but anyway back to um, I I think honestly I we live in the scientific age. I mean, we live in an age that has a scientific mindset more so than any other time in history. And then the question becomes, well, what do we mean by scientific mindset? And to me, it's not what most people think it is. To me, it's a certain prejudice. It's a certain way of perceiving things that in, in the mind of that individual becomes a form of proof in their mind. So in other words, um, whereas to me, homeopathy is the, the perfection of empiricism. It is empirical and it is experiential. So what counts in homeopathy is what you see and what the patient's experience is. Um, and it's, it's what you see is what you get. Whereas in conventional medicine, over the decades, it's become more and more uh, rational. You know, they call themselves the rational medicine. And weirdly, what that has come to be is kind of a strange, twisted logic um, where the idea of can we explain something is more important than what are the actual you know phenomena that we're observing right so the homeopaths observe and and purposely try not to explain and the and the conventional medical western medicine is always trying to explain and rarely paying attention to the patient Right. So, mm. so in other words, it, you can, you can demonstrate this in this kind of simple example where um, a patient comes to me and they say, I have IBS. And of course I know what IBS is, uh, but I purposely look at them and I say, what do you mean you have IBS? And they say, I have irritable bowel syndrome. And I say, what do you mean you have irritable bowel syndrome? And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, aren't you, aren't you a doctor? You're supposed to know this, right? And so that's when my perfect opening where I use to explain to them, well, me as a homeopath, I understand that no two people are, are alike. And so one person's symptom pattern that they're calling IBS is completely different from another person's symptom pattern that's IBS. So from the homeopathic perspective, the name, the label, the 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 the, the thing we've chosen to call it uh, is an abstraction, right? It's a way to lump everybody into the same category, and yet, in reality, if you get ten people in the room with IBS, they're all going to tell you totally different things. So, the allopaths are busy trying to. Mm, uh, make patients conform to their concept of what medicine is, right? To them, medicine is okay. We're gonna we're gonna fit you into a diagnostic category, and then based on that diagnostic category, we're gonna give you the drug indicated for that diagnostic category, and so. 
it's this very twisted form of logic that is overruling the experience of the patient. It's not paying attention to the experience of the patient. Me, on the other hand, I sit there and I go, okay, what do you mean by IBS? Okay, well, I mean, my stomach gets all bloated and I'm terribly constipated and I'm in pain and I've had this horrible constipation for for years. And oh, by the way, I have this uh, this tendency to my, my sleep is either terrible and I'm insomniac or else I sleep really heavily and I dream heavily. And the doctor says I have uh, um, uh, sleep apnea. And I go, oh, okay. That sounds like uh, homeopathic opium, right? So homeopathic opium or, or opium is known for those symptoms, right? It's, an, it's a nar- narcotic drug in conventional medicine that's famous for being able to constipate people. And in recreational drug history, uh, opium will put you into a dreamlike state uh, an altered state of consciousness where you feel like you can't tell if you're, am I dreaming or am I awake? And and so on and so forth. And it slows down your metabolism to the point where you, your breathing almost stops, as in like sleep apnea, right? And so I'm paying attention to the patient and their specific version of IBS and not just IBS, but the whole big picture surrounding IBS Uh, understanding that IBS is just some construct in the minds of allopathic doctors who all buy into this kind of simple uh, reduction of patients into color-by-number categories that makes it easier to prescribe for them, right? And so we're stuck in this world where this is what is considered science in medicine, right? The science is that, uh, you know, you have to get a diagnosis that, that fits our concept of diagnoses and you have to follow our therapeutic regimens. That's like the, the beginning and end. It's it's kind of a, a little club they've created for themselves and they've shut out the rest of the world and, new ideas are not welcome. In fact, new ideas are viewed with hostility. And so that's why it's hard to get anything taken seriously by Western medicine, right? Whether it's homeopathy or acupuncture or herbal medicine or, or Reiki or whatever, you know, it's, it's, uh, they're not, uh, they're not open to thinking uh, outside of their um, system of logic, and it's really interesting when you think about the perspective from a mainstream medical model is that we can't provide a treatment until we get the diagnosis correct. And if we get the diagnosis incorrect, then the treatment's not going to work. But that's almost the opposite with homeopathy. It's like it doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is because if we get the treatment right, then they'll get better. But if you get the treatment wrong in homeopathy, the person's not going to have severe adverse reactions. And if you get the treatment wrong with allopathic medicine, there are quite severe consequences. There's a lot of iatrogenic death and um, disability that's caused by a lot of these uh, interventions from an allopathic perspective. But you're not really faced with that dilemma with homeopathic medicine, are you? Because if you do get the remedy wrong, then the person's just not going to get better and then you'll have to go back and try and work out, okay, where, where do I need to modify my treatment here to make sure that the person does get a response? Yes, absolutely. So, um, right, either the remedy resonates with the person and puts them through an energetic change, thus restoring balance to the life force, thereby rendering symptoms no longer necessary because now they are in balance again, or, or, you, or, or it doesn't work. It doesn't resonate. And if it doesn't resonate, it, it, it kind of bounces off the person and does nothing in most cases. Sometimes you'll see, you know, 
the person will say, well, I started to feel better for a couple few days and then I lapsed back into my stuff. And that means, you know, it was kind of close, but no cigar. You know, it was close, uh, almost a match, but it wasn't a match. And so you'll see things like that. There can be minor effects, but nothing like the effect that you see in conventional medicine where, as you say, uh, there's so much iatrogenesis and at the at the at the core of all iatrogenesis or not all but vast majority of it is suppression right so if you think about allopathic medicine conventional western medicine its fundamental principle is treatment by opposites right it's the, it's literally the opposite of homeopathy you're going yeah. to you're going to take a drug and try to stop a symptom you're going to try and suppress that symptom. Not only that, you're just going to focus on a, a single symptom or a small set of symptoms without regard for the whole person. So science and pharmacology has developed very powerful synthetic chemicals that are capable of doing those things, right? That's what's so darn dangerous about it. Because because pharmacology is so effective, right? It is, it's ruthless in, in obtaining its objective, right? So if I take that, uh, that prednisone, it's going to suppress all my symptoms. If I take that antidepressant, it's going to try and suppress my depression. If I take that hypertensive drug, it's going to suppress my blood pressure. If I take that anti-itch medicine, it's going to suppress my itch. Okay, so so when you do that, the problem becomes that the body doesn't want you to do that. The body will rebel. There will be a compensatory backlash, right? Um, whereas homeopathy, when you, right, we're thinking about it where we're giving someone a substance that can actually mimic the symptoms. So homeopathy is trying to work with the body and its wisdom. The body in its wisdom has generated certain symptoms like that itchy, blistery thing. And I'm going to try and give it a nudge in the right direction and help it along by giving a homeopathic dose of poison ivy, right? But along comes conventional medicine and they do the opposite. We're going to give some powerful chemical that's going to prevent your body from having those symptoms. Okay, well, what happens? Well, for a certain amount of time, you may have the appearance of a cure, right? Where the person will say, wow, gee, my itch is gone. I'm feeling better. I'm not so itchy. But of course, that was, you know, when we understand symptoms as the body's best way of coping, the body's best way of trying to heal itself, and now you just took some, uh, some drug that actually works against that to, and is preventing that, then eventually your body's going to rebound and cause more trouble. And when something is successfully suppressed, it tends to, uh, as I say, metastasize elsewhere into the system. So in other words, right, if, if I have that poison ivy and I take a strong drug like a a prednisone or something, um, and the poison ivy, poison ivy clears up real fast, and then I'm, I'm good, and I think, gee, wow, that was a miracle. That prednisone works great, you know? And then strangely, you know, three, four weeks later, my knees start to feel achy and stiff, and then the next thing you know, my back is feeling stiff, and so now I go to the doctor again and I'm saying, hey, doc, my, do I have arthritis? What's going on here? And of course, conventional medicine breaks things up into separate boxes so it never connects the dots, right? But And so they don't see the connection between having suppressed the itchy skin condition uh, and the new problem. And you bring that to a homeopath and the homeopath immediately goes, oh, gee, you suppress that itch, and now you're giving yourself a case of arthritis. And not only that, uh, I'm purposely using this example because it's a nice little example. Um, the homeopathic remedy made from poison ivy, Rustox, is famous for 
arthritic conditions of a very specific nature where uh, the person will complain of initial stiffness that makes them uncomfortable and makes them want to get up and move and stretch. And when they move and stretch, they feel better again. And then they sit down in a chair and 10 minutes later, they start to stiffen up again and they feel uncomfortable and they have to get back up out of the chair and move around again. Right. And so you just took a person who had the original symptoms of poison ivy and now you've suppressed that and now they're getting poison ivy like arthritic symptoms on a deeper level right and so conventional medicine has uh as its basic its basic mode is suppression it constantly suppresses symptoms which is why there are so many sick people because we have a society that has bought into this idea of instant gratification through strong chemicals that uh, suppress, powerfully suppress those symptoms. And then like the scientists and like the doctors, we are all um, in denial about the connections between these events as they unfold through our life. We don't realize that the pill we took here is now causing new symptoms a month later and the pill I took for that is now causing new symptoms six months later and so on and so on and so on into this vicious cycle. Dr. Malerba, you mentioned there that there's this denial in the connection between events and it makes me think about the terrain and the germ theory, which you know everyone knows about the germ theory. It's that we get sick because we get exposed to a bacteria or a virus. And whatever we've done to our bodies previously, whether it be a bad diet, poor thoughts, not enough exercise, taking too many um, substances which cause toxicity in our body, um, is actually the probably underlying or contributing factor to the condition. Um, but again, it, we never address the underlying cause. We always blame it on something else. So a virus or a bacteria, you go in to the doctor and they say, oh, you've got a bacterial infection. Let's give you some antibiotics to suppress the bacteria. But the bacteria, in my opinion, were never the problem. They were the body's response at trying to bring the body back to homeostasis. Um, that's sort of my understanding of the the terrain theory and i've been looking into this quite a lot over the last 12 months um but what are your perspectives on that theory because it is it does really go hand in hand with homeopathic medicine doesn't it yes yes absolutely um yeah i mean you got two sides to the equation you've got uh conventional medicine is focused like you say on external factors it it's almost like it, it's it doesn't want to look at personal responsibility and the things in the person it wants to blame something on the outside some outside invader right the bug the bug even though of course uh, the the probably the most uh, current science is studying the microbiome and and we are literally you know, carriers of billions of microbes and it's, we're, we are made up of microbes, right? So uh, we can't blame it on some external bug uh, in that sense. I mean, it's true, right? It's, of course it's true. And we can't deny the fact that certain bugs have certain degrees of virulence and can affect many people, right? Even if you're in really great health, right? Uh, but your average everyday bug and typical bugs like the flu and, and, and all these things that circulate around us all the time are not going to uh, affect you or take advantage of you unless you are in a particular state of susceptibility. And to me, that's the flip side uh is terrain theory, you know, you have germ theory and you have terrain theory, right? So the terrain is is the host, is the human body, the human person, right? And it's the state of health that you are in. And 
you know, Western science scoffs at the notion and says, we're much more scientific because we've isolated this bug. And if we kill this bug, you know, all will be well. Of course, we've seen that's a failure. Um, but it's, it comes down to a question of susceptibility. And susceptibility is determined by the health of the host. So why is it that, uh, you know, six people in a family all exposed to the same flu, uh, two of them get violently ill, two of them get, get uh, mildly ill, the two others don't get sick at all, right? Or let's do, let's do COVID, right? So everyone is exposed to the same COVID, right? And two of them get really sick, one gets mildly sick, uh, another gets no symptoms and tests positive, and the other two get no symptoms and tests negative, right? So this represents this wide array of responses to the buck, right? And those responses are determined by a very complex set of factors, the most important of which are your general state of health. Now, how do we determine who is going to be the, the most resistant or the most susceptible. Well, conventional medicine has it uh, has it somewhat correct when they are talking about the the immunocompromised, right? Of course, the immunocompromised are the ones who are going to be more susceptible. Now, immunology to me is just one little field of the study of resistance to disease, right? In conventional medicine. It's, it's, again, broken off into its own little box, and that's the science of immunology. And uh, they ignore all the other factors when it comes to uh, resistance to disease. It's grossly oversimplified into this concept of bugs and antibiotics and vaccines. And on the other hand, from my homeopathic perspective, I can give you a good sense after an interview of who's going to be susceptible to it or not. You know, if the person is suffering from fatigue and over the course of their lifetime, they've taken all these drugs and they had a head injury 10 years ago and their mem their memory is fuzzy and they don't sleep well and they, they have a sweets craving that they can't control and they don't exercise very much. Well, well obviously this person's going to be much more susceptible to getting any kind of illness, you know, uh, not just the bug that, that we're talking about, whatever bug we may be talking about, uh, compared to someone who gets regular exercise, eats a healthy natural diet, uh, has taken a minimum of, of drugs over the course of their lifetime, has used alternative therapies so that they avoided that surgery when, when I had this symptom and I, I healed up and I, and I wasn't, didn't need the surgery when I had that ankle problem and so on and so forth, right? So terrain theory is about maintaining the health of the host. And even then, right, like uh, suppressive drugs, to, which to me is like the biggest factor in what makes people sick, really, by far. There's no comparison. Suppressive drugs have this tendency to drive disease deeper into the system. And in homeopathy, we understand that. There's a whole philosophical uh, framework of understanding that, that people can get sick on the physical level, they can get sick on the mental, the mental level, the emotional level, and they can get sick on the mental level, right? So in other words, I can have an achy knee or I can have depression, or I can have memory loss. And as a disease, as symptoms are driven inward by suppressing them through drugs and by suppressing them through removing body parts through surgeries, the, the, the organism is forced to draw its line of defense deeper and deeper into the system and the disease goes deeper into the system. And so as it goes deeper, it goes from the physical to the emotional and to the mental. It moves in that direction, right? So 
that's why, in my opinion, you see so much mental illness in in American society. You have very sick people who use a lot of drugs, who who take drugs at the the slightest sniffle and sneeze that comes out. They they're popping drugs all the time, and the the long term net result is to compromise the overall health of the person and to drive the disease deeper into the system, rendering them more susceptible to psychiatric illness, rendering them more susceptible to cognitive uh, dysfunctions. And if you are sick like that, you're also going to be more susceptible to something like the flu that goes around town, right? And so it's a function of maintaining good health by using the understanding this whole framework and not doing things that are going to lead to the compromise of your overall health and the overall strength of your life force. Dr. Malerba, do you see any light at the end of the tunnel in regards to where modern medicine is heading? Because in my perspective, in my opinion, I think there are some, well, there are many things that they get wrong and some things that they get right, but it seems to be heading in the wrong direction. Do you think there's any hope to turn around the healthcare system in the, particularly in the West, or are we uh, heading down a path of self-destruction here? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. And it's, there's, you know, it's a, a sad answer. I mean, I, I, I do think the only way it's going to change is through crisis there's going to be some serious crises occurring in terms of our collective health. And of course, the driving force that behind it all is money, right? So no one, there's no incentive to change it because they make tremendous amounts of money by perpetuating this system. I don't think they consciously, understandingly realize what they're doing, right? Everyone, everyone learns the system and they buy into it and they believe it and they believe they're doing the right thing, but they don't understand the implications and, and, and what's happening and that people are not getting better. They get sicker and sicker. So they need more and more medicine and that's great for business. So there's no incentive to change that. And you come along and you say, I, I, hey, hey, I'm, look at me. I got this idea. Maybe we could do this. They don't want to hear that, you know, so we are going to face uh, a lot of uh, problems in the future. You know, not to completely trash conventional medicine because it has a lot of good things going on too, right? I mean, to me, the strength of conventional medicine is its diagnostics in terms of, you know, diagnostic testing like blood tests and imaging tests and so on. It can tell you a lot and give you a lot of information, right? Uh, And, and in, in emergency medicine, urgent care is—it's really good if you're in an emergency and you gotta plug up a, a burst blood vessel and, and and fix a a broken a broken bone. Right? These are these are very valuable things, uh, but it's terrible. It's terrible at dealing with chronic disease, and its fundamentally suppressive approach to acute disease. It may be helpful in the short term, right? So when I take that, uh, you know, that uh, Tylenol, it helps lower my fever, but that's not a good thing to do. So uh, it's in the end, it, it contributes to my overall, uh, a decline in my overall health, right? So uh, there's some good things about Western medicine, but ultimately, if it's going to change, I think we're in for a rough ride. At least I, th- I think I agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly I, I do agree that medicine has many wonderful things. So, you know, if you chop a limb off, don't come running, running with a herbal poultice and put it on the end of my bloody stump. Like it's not, <laughs> I don't want that. I want to go to the emergency department. But when we have people with diabetes or heart disease, as you said, we it's not caused by a... Uh, statin deficiency or it's not right. uh right the, it's not caused by like a headache's not caused by a paracetamol or an aspirin deficiency 
right. we have to look beyond that and and find what the underlying cause is and address that. And I think that's another reason why people are probably not so accepting of natural therapies is because these ideas that we're talking about now are so foreign to them. And it's almost like people aren't aware that they actually do have control over their own health and they can make themselves better. And there are things that you can do that are very low risk and effective like homeopathy that can help to restore people's health. So in closing, Dr. Malerba, are there any uh, things that you would like to leave our listeners with? Sure. Let's see. Um, I, th- I just think it's really important to understand this concept of suppression and that what the vast majority of drugs do is they simply suppress symptoms. And while that brings about temporary relief, in the long run, it leads to your downfall. So as long as a symptom is not severe, you're better off putting up with it in the short run until your body heals up, or you're better off using a different sort of non-suppressive therapy. So that's one piece of advice. Um, The other thing is really to think about the big picture. And and by that I mean, you know, Nobody ever talks about, you know, what is illness? What is it? What's the point of it, right? And um, and yet people will confirm all the time, you know, that when I was under this stress, uh, suddenly I developed these symptoms, right? So my body is reacting to a situation. So if I uh, simply take a drug to blot out the symptom or the pain or the itch or whatever, I'm not I'm not getting to the bottom of it. I, I'm, I haven't even come close to addressing the original issue that led to this symptom. When my mother died and I was terribly grief-stricken, that's when my migraine started and my doctor has me taking these pills. But wait a minute. What, okay, let me think back about it. Have I resolved this grief over my mother? No, it's been hanging on for more than a year now and I'm still struggling on in this in terms of this grief well maybe i should go do something about that maybe i should seek out another approach to this problem and get to the root of the problem and so we need to understand where is all this coming from why are we having our symptoms and is it a smart thing to simply use a powerful chemical to anesthetize ourselves or to block our symptoms out. And, and that's, that's, that's something really worth thinking about. Dr. Maloba, if there are people who would like to get in contact with you, I'm not sure, do you offer online consultations at all? Yes, with, the, with, with COVID and the, the age of technology, it's become easier and easier. So yeah, I do. I've seen patients through you know, things like Zoom and FaceTime and so on. I do virtual appointments. Um, and of course, I always encourage people to, to see them face-to-face because you get a, a more, a truer sense of, of someone and their problems when you can talk to them directly. But yes, I do offer those, uh, those opportunities. Fantastic. And if people were looking to get in contact with you, um, you were mentioning your website before was drmhomeopathy.com. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It's uh, drmhomeopathy, drmhomeopathy.com. That's my website. And, yeah, and I encourage people to have a look at that. And you've also got the YouTube channel, All Things Homeopathy. Um, so I'd also encourage people to have a look at that as well. And what's your sort of um, premise with that uh, YouTube channel, Dr. Malerba? Uh, my intention with all things homeopathy channel on YouTube is is to educate the world from, from the most basic all the way up to the more complex aspects of homeopathy. So in my opinion, you won't find a better place to learn about homeopathy if you go to that site and just start with the first video and work your way through them. By the time you, you, you know, you come to the end, you will have learned a lot about 
what homeopathy is, how it works, what it's all about, and the principles and practice and so on and so forth. So it's a great place to educate the world about homeopathy. And it, and it will dispel many of the, the myths about it. And, and it's a very, very sound, accurate place to get good information, in my opinion. Dr. Malerba, anytime I get a guest on like you, who's just so uh, knowledgeable and you've got such a well-rounded perspective on things, an hour is never enough. It always just seems to go by so quickly and I've still well, got a list want it of to fall short, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I've still got a list of probably ten or fifteen things here that I want to chat to you about, and um, you know, it would probably take us another couple of hours to really go through and nut all of these things out. But uh, for the time you've given me today, I am really, really grateful, and I've certainly learned a lot from you. And I was wondering, maybe in the future, you would. Be interested to come back and have another discussion with me on a few more topics. Sure, of course, I'd love to, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to to talk on your program because it's what we need to do. We need to disseminate the information in a world that is increasingly trying to squelch our voices. So, thank you very much for spreading the good word about all of these holistic things, and it's 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 the wave of the future, whether people realize it or not. It is. It is indeed, and. We have to unite together, all of the practitioners in the world, to get this information out to people, as you said. And, you know, every little bit counts, and we just do it one step after the other, and eventually we'll get there. So, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Malerba, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.